0: As we continue our study through this letter of James to Christians, we come now to chapter two, where we're going to begin at verse one, where in the general, James continues his theme, the tests, the evidences, the proofs of a living faith. But specifically, he's going to begin to apply it to congregational life, to Christians in community. We always have this tension that we're dealing with in the Christian life, in that Salvation is a distinctly individual matter between the person and God. Yet nevertheless, we are saved as individuals by each individual being born again before God. Yet nevertheless, there's always the dynamic of community that should be and should be present within the Christian life. So here you're going to notice most pointedly beginning at verse two, where James applies the principle he's going to bring up in verse one in Christian community. But let's dive right into it. James chapter 2, beginning now at verse 1, where we read, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Well, the idea there in verse 1 is plain enough. James, in his very direct way, is telling us that we should not, as believers, be people of partiality, discrimination, prejudice. These are the ideas. Now, before we kind of unpack that just a little bit, I want you to notice the phrasing that he uses in verse 1 to describe Jesus. He says, My brethren, again, writing to those within the Christian family, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our belief in Him, and our life as believers, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You know, but before I go on, to just kind of the main point in this verse, which is the idea of partiality, discrimination, prejudice, we don't want to leave the striking title... That James gives for Jesus here. We don't want to leave it without giving it any intention. He calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Now, I understand that in our New King James translation, that's the translation that I'm teaching from right now. The New King James translations has the Lord in the phrase, the Lord of glory in italics, showing us that this didn't belong actually in the original Greek. The original Greek leads something like this, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. But the way that it's grammatically constructed means that that phrase of glory looks back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's an entirely fair addition by the translators to say the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's what James is referring to. I find here a comment by the Bible commentator, James Moffat, to be very instructive here. Moffat, who, by the way, wasn't a particularly conservative commentator back in his day. He wrote a couple generations ago. But here's a quote from his commentary. He says, quote, the Christian religion is here called more explicitly belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the divine glory. All right, pause right there in the middle of Moffat's quote. Do you see what Moffat's saying? Moffat, who was a Greek scholar himself, says that this idea is that Jesus Christ is the divine glory. Now, let me continue on with Moffat's quote. He says, a striking term for Christ as the full manifestation of the divine presence and majesty. The Jews called this the Shekinah. End quote. Again, it is a striking phrase there showing that James, the half-brother of Jesus, and again, we remind ourselves, these men shared the same mother. Of course, Jesus had a divine father. Uh, Mary was born as, uh, while still, Jesus was conceived in Mary while Mary was still a virgin by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, not by normal process of uh, pregnancy. Nevertheless, they shared the same mother, had different fathers, James, who grew up so close to Jesus, who knew better than anybody that Jesus was a man at the same time, recognized that Jesus was and is God, you know we remind ourselves that this letter of James is properly and widely regarded as one of the first letters of the New Testament, maybe the first, if not the first, and very soon in the process of letters being written in the New Testament anywhere from a d forty four to a d forty eight and this means that the earliest Christians considered Jesus to be God. This was not a later development in the Christian faith. They believed Jesus was God, and like James, they said he was God in strong, unmistakable terms. All right, that's sort of a side issue there in verse 1. Notice the main issue. He says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Christians, don't be prejudiced. Don't discriminate among other people or, or about other people. Now, the Lord of glory, as revealed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, shows no partiality. Passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17 and Acts chapter 10 verse 34 tell us that God is not a respecter of persons, that he doesn't discriminate, that that, that he doesn't pay attention to economic status or race or nationality or class or any such distinctions. And because God does not, we should not. Now, it's important for us to realize that no matter what you think of our present age, whether you think we live in a time where discrimination and prejudice are very strong or not so strong, I'll tell you this, James lived in and wrote to, originally, an age that was much more prejudiced than our own. James wrote to a very partial culture. They were filled with prejudice and hatred based on class, based on ethnicity, based on nationality, based on religious background. You you see, in the ancient world, people were routinely, and should I say permanently categorized, because they were a Jew or a Gentile, because they were slave or free, because they were rich or poor, because they were Greek or barbarian, whatever. And one of the glorious things of the early church was that they rose above those distinctions. You know, it sort of blew the mind of the everyday Roman that you would have these Christian communities where rich and poor would sit together in the same congregation, where slave and free would sit together in the same congregation, where Greek and barbarian, where Jew and Gentile, where men and women, where they would sit together in the same congregation and be part of the same Christian community. In some ways, that scandalized the Roman uh thinking of that day but it was part of the glory of christianity now i want you to understand that this thinking did not always come easy to believers that that's why james encourages so but but james understood something that paul also understood that part of the great work of jesus christ on the cross was to break down these barriers that separate people. That's why Paul writes in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, where he's speaking mainly about the division between Jew and Gentile, where he says this. Uh, Again, I'm reading from verses 14 and 15 from Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Do do you see what Paul describes there in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15? that Jesus, through his work on the cross, broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. But listen, that's what Paul's speaking, but it doesn't only apply to Jew and Gentile. He broke down the walls between races, between classes, between nationalities, between ethnicities. We can be one in Jesus Christ, and that is the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that being the case, how important is it for us to hear the exhortation of James Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now, starting in verse 2, he's going to speak about how this partiality could manifest itself, show itself in the Christian community. Check this out. Starting now at verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's James chapter 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. And I love these verses because in it, James paints a very vivid picture. I mean, we just enter right into it. You can see it in your mind's eye, can't you? There you are at a church service, and you can imagine your modern-day church service, or you can imagine a church service from the early church days, where there they are. The believers are gathered together, and in walks a man who's obviously wealthy. I don't know if he pulled up in a plush chariot. I don't know if he was wearing many gold rings. That's what James mentions, a man with gold rings in fine apparel. By the way, D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary on the book of James, explains that rings were a very prominent way that a Roman man, or I suppose woman as well, would display their wealth. And matter of fact, in Rome, there were certain stores or shops where you could rent a ring for a special occasion. Uh, so that you could kind of put on the image of being more wealthy than you were. It's funny how things really don't change from uh, one millennium to the next, do they? Uh, People are always trying to impress people and make people think that they're more wealthy than they really are. In in any regard, we have the picture of the man with gold rings, and he's in fine apparel, and everybody knows this man has money. And, and, And what happens? Well, there also comes into the church assembly a man in rags. Today, we'd probably call him homeless. He doesn't have much money. The the wording used in the original language here in James chapter two here uh, of the poor man in verse two, it describes a person who's very poor, uh, one who's a beggar. That's the kind of person who walks in. Now, when the rich man comes in, you pay attention to that one. You say, here, sit here in a good place. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Are you comfortable? Welcome to our church. Do you have any questions I can answer? You you really go overboard with the hospitality, but what do you say to the poor man? To the poor man, you say, hey, no seat for you. You stand over there. Oh, you want to sit somewhere? Come, you can sit at the on the floor at my feet. Now, you could say, That the problem that James is drawing attention to in this passage, it's not so much the good treatment of the rich man as it is the bad treatment of the poor man. If you treated the poor man with the same kind of care and concern that you treated the rich man, everything would be fine. But the fact that there's something wrong in your heart is displayed in the fact that you treat the rich man one way and you treat the poor man a different way. You treat the rich man very well. You treat the poor man like dirt. And this is the great problem that James points out here. So much so that he says here in verse four, did you notice this phrase in verse four? Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, there's something evil in your thinking. You're not thinking right. By the way, I love this, how consistent this is with the rest of the New Testament, where Paul says that an important part of our Christian growth is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He says that in Romans chapter 12. So again, how we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need the evil thoughts uh, just transformed by the word of God, by the spirit of God, by that work in our life. And how do you know that you have evil thoughts? Well, if you're showing the kind of partiality that's being shown here, that's one way you can. I'm not trying to say it's the only way, but it's one way you can know it. The evil thoughts were evident by their actions of prejudice and partiality. And I can think of at least three ways that this partiality shows wrong thinking, shows an evil heart. Number one, to show partiality in this way that James describes shows that we care more for outward appearance than we do for the heart. Do you remember that passage from First Samuel chapter sixteen, verse seven where paul Paul, where God speaks to Samuel, and he tells them he tells him, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, so should we. And sometimes we're very quick to judge, well, this must be a good person. Look how well he's dressed. Look um, how much status he has as reflected by the car that he drove up in or the clothes that he wears. This must be a good man. You could be very wrong in that estimation. Couldn't you judging only by outward appearance? And sometimes you look at a person, well, look at them. They're dressed practically in rags. They don't have much. This must be a person, of bad character. Not necessarily. Don't judge only by outward appearance. Ask God to give you wisdom to judge a man or a woman by the heart. That's the first mistake. The second mistake is that to show partiality in this way shows that we misunderstand who is important and who is blessed in the sight of God. Sometimes we assume that if a person has riches, wow, what a blessing for their life. Brothers and sisters, not necessarily. We know, do we not, that sometimes riches are a curse to a person. Riches can be a hindrance to the kingdom of God. There are people who have untold anxiety and stress and problems in their life because they have so much that they worry about it constantly. Uh, they, They have so much that they can't let go of it and really live a life that's focused on the age to come. They're obsessed with everything they have in this present age. No, we make a wrong estimation when we think that to be wealthy automatically means that a person is blessed, that a person is honored by God. And here's a third way to show partiality in the way that James describes here shows a selfish streak in us. Usually, why is it that we favor the rich man over the poor man? Why? Because there's something in me that says, the rich man can do something for me that the poor man probably can't. Listen, that is just selfish. I'm looking at people for what I can use them for, what they can give me instead of how I can love them, instead of who they are in Jesus' name. So no, these are three big mistakes that we can make Uh, when we have this sort of evil thought of partiality, we care only about outward appearance. We give too much estimation to material wealth and it displays that we have a selfish streak within us. Now, James is gonna continue to develop this idea starting now at verse five. Take a look here, starting at verse five. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? You see, James is saying that when we show this partiality to the rich and against the poor, because please remember, the problem isn't that you're being too nice to the rich man, it's being that you're being too rude and disgraceful towards the poor man. If you treated them all wonderfully, it would be no problem. What you're forgetting is this in verse 5 God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. You know, it's easy for human beings to be partial to the rich, but God is not partial to the rich. As a matter of fact, you could say this because riches are an obstacle to the kingdom of God. And do you remember Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler? Doesn't that demonstrate to us that riches are, in fact, an obstacle to the kingdom? Now, I praise God that it's an obstacle that many people overcome, but make no mistake about it. Wealth and riches in this world can be a definite obstacle to inheriting the kingdom of God. Because that's the case, there is a sense in which God specially blesses the poor of this world. You could say that one blessing—I'm not trying to say that it's the only blessing— but one blessing that the poor of this world have is that they have more opportunities to trust God. Therefore, they may be far more rich in faith than the rich man is. I like what F.B. Meyer said about this. Read, listen to this quote. He says, quote, The rich man may trust him, but the poor man must. The poor man has no fortress in which to hide except the two strong arms of God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Listen, the, the, the rich man may trust God. Yeah, well, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Listen, the poor man has to trust God. And, and so it's a wonderful idea that God has blessed, blessed in this sense, the poor of this world, that they might be rich in faith. But there's another way in which God has chosen the poor. Think about this. God has chosen the poor in the sense that when Jesus Christ came, he chose a life of relative poverty. Now, I think it's possible to exaggerate the poverty of Jesus. Jesus didn't walk around in rags. Jesus didn't go without food. His heavenly father supplied his every need, often through generous people that surrounded him. The gospels make mention of generous women who supported Jesus. And so Jesus did not go without, but in a relative measure, he became poor. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he became poor that we might become rich in him. And if you think about it, it's a very striking statement. God has chosen the poor in the sense that when Jesus added humanity to his deity and walked among us, he came into poverty. Again, let me read you another quote from F.B. Meyer. I think he nails it here. He says this, quote, There is nothing that men dread more than poverty. They will break every commandment rather than be poor. But it was God's chosen lot. He had one opportunity only of living our life, and he chose to be born of parents too poor to present more than two doves at his presentation in the temple. Make no mistake about it, that in Jesus's one opportunity, in the one time God said, I will add humanity, to my deity, and live among men. He came when he could have come as the richest man who ever lived. He chose the poor, thus identifying with the poor. And this is another way that God has chosen the poor. Now, I hope that nobody gets this wrong. God has not only chosen the poor. Now, you can say that he has chosen the poor. First, I like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He said, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You get this idea? You could say that God's first call has gone out to the poor and the weak in the world. Now, he also calls the wealthy and the mighty, but his first call has come to the humble and the poor. So, We shouldn't get this wrong in our minds. God never calls us to have a partiality for the rich, but he also does not call us to have a partiality against the rich. If somebody was ever in the position where they would to judge in a dispute between a rich man and a poor man, they should let the law and they should let the facts of the case decide the matter. They shouldn't let the fact that one is rich and another is poor, either automatically siding with the rich man or automatically siding with the poor man, either way would be wrong. No, they should have a principle higher of that and not show partiality. This is especially true because of what James writes in verse 6 of James chapter 2. He says, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? James reminded his reader that the rich often sin against others this is often because, as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of every kind of evil. For this reason alone, the rich are not worthy of every kind of evil. And of course, history shows us that in fact, oftentimes, we're not going to say always, but oftentimes, the rich indeed do oppress the poor. So for those reasons, do not show partiality. Now, in verses 8 and 9, he's going to add more reasons why we should not po- par- sh- not show partiality because uh, it's condemned by the scriptures. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I, I like, first of all, what James writes here about the royal law, according to the scriptures. In other words, James anticipated that some of his readers might say, hey, when I show love to my rich neighbor, didn't the Bible tell me to love my neighbor as myself? That's what I'm doing. I'm just obeying the law. No, that's partiality because you don't love your poor brother in the same way. That's why he says, look at it there in verse nine. If you show partiality, you commit the sin commit sin. The problem isn't that one is nice to the rich. The problem is that you're showing partiality to the rich and you're not being nice to the poor man. And so this is something for us to take very seriously because I love how James states it here in verse eight. He calls this the royal law. You know, our God is a great king, is he not? And if our God is a great king, his law is a royal law. Matter of fact, you could say that King Jesus put a special emphasis on this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law. That is the king's command. Now, it is also reflected in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 gives a very similar command. But James is reminding us that the poor man is just as much our neighbor as the rich man may be. So we understand this, that not only is it a disgrace among believers to show partiality to the rich and against the poor, it specifically goes against God's command, the royal law as stated both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the mouth of our savior, Jesus Christ as well. Now, starting out verse 10, having brought up the matter of obeying the law of God James is going to continue along that thought in the next four verses, starting here at verse 10. Are you ready for this? For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment." Again, you just have to love James' phrasing here. First of all, he brings the point home in verse 10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all. What, what James is guarding us here is against a selective obedience. You know, the kind of person who sort of says they will pick and choose which commandments of God should be obeyed and which could be safely disregarded. You, you can't say this. I like God's command against murder, so I'll keep that one. But I don't like his command against adultery, so I'm going to ignore that one. God cares about the whole law. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul spoke about, especially in the book of Romans, that if someone breaks the law in one aspect, they've broken the law in its entirety. And this reflects some of the rabbinic teaching that was out there in the New Testament days, that the whole law must be kept if someone is going to be justified by the law. Matter of fact, Adam Clark quotes a rabbi named Rabbi Yochanan, who says this, quote, But if a man do the whole with the omission of one, he is guilty of the whole with the one. Again, the idea is simply this. Many ancient rabbis taught, again, I won't say all of them taught this, but many ancient rabbis taught this same principle that's reflected in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that you break the law in one, you've broken it in the whole. Now, We need to pause right there at the end of verse 10 where he says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Does not the truth of that statement make you run to your Savior, Jesus Christ? Does it not make you say, if I've broken the law in one aspect, I've broken it in every aspect, I need a Savior. And you know what the truth is? You do need a Savior. And I need a Savior. And everybody needs a Savior. That's why we preach Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And that's why we understand what James understood that nobody is going to get to heaven because of their law keeping. Rather, we get to heaven because there's one man who kept the law perfectly on our behalf. That's Jesus Christ. There's one man who died to pay the penalty of sin that my broken law and your broken law deserves. And we look to Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf and the one who paid his life as a substitute for every time that we did break the law. This is wonderful stuff. Now, in light of that fact, though, that we can't be selective about our obedience to the law. So in verse 12, he says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We are under the law of liberty. It has liberty. But it is still, nevertheless, the law that must be obeyed and that we will be judged by. Now, I know what you might say. You might say, listen, David, I thought that my judgment was over because I'm not going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ or the, the uh, rather the, the great white throne of judgment, I should say. Um, I thought I'm forgiven of my sins. Well, we are. But the Bible says that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. There is some judgment that we will face for how we've lived in this life. And so we have a law. It's a law of liberty, but it is a law nevertheless. Therefore, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You know, as people who will be judged by the law of liberty, we should always show mercy to other people by refraining from partiality, discrimination, prejudice. The mercy we show will be extended to us again on the day of judgment because we need mercy to triumph over judgment. You know, we said it in our early studies through the book of James that the book of James seems to have been written by someone who remembered what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Because you could say that James is relating another principle of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount here. Here's Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, again, in those chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, if we really understand that statement, it's sobering. Do you understand what's being said here, brothers, sisters? Here's the idea. I have a tendency, and I think maybe you do too. We all have a tendency to want to give others the small measure of mercy. But when we come before God, what do we want? We want the giant measure of mercy. I want to measure out mercy to others with a teaspoon. But when I want mercy from God, I want God to bring it in a dump truck. I want to bring it in a tanker truck. You see the difference? Where God says, I'm going to use the same measure of mercy to you that you've used towards others. And when I see that, and when I understand that, and when I really let that impact my heart, what does it say? It says, I want to show a lot of mercy to other people because I want God to show me a lot of mercy. So mercy will triumph over judgment. And we need to receive the mercy of God because we understand we've been guilty under the law. We understand That there have been times when we've shown partiality, we've shown discrimination, we've shown prejudice against other people. Therefore, what do we need? We need the glorious triumph of mercy over judgment. We need to flee to Jesus Christ as our Savior, to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from our evil thinking and our wicked hearts, and to say, yes, there's a new start in Jesus Christ. You know, we we talk a lot in the world today about people having prejudice and uh, discrimination and partiality and all the rest. Listen, there is forgiveness for those sins in Jesus Christ. There's mercy for those things. We just need to say, God, take my heart as weak and messed up as it might be. I put my trust in you and I simply ask, give me a new start for Jesus' sake. I want to live under that royal law under that perfect law of liberty. And I want you, God, to work in me a merciful heart towards others because I need a lot of mercy from you. This is the kind of new start that God can give us in Jesus Christ. So I'm very grateful for these first 13 verses of James chapter two, how directly he deals with the idea of partiality, discrimination, prejudice, and the kind of love we should have for other people. But I hope it hits your heart. I hope it makes you say that I'm going to be the kind of person who receives a big measure of mercy from God. So God helping me, I'm going to give a big measure of mercy to other people. As I said before, God helping us, this is exactly what we'll do. And in our next session together, we'll pick it up at verse 14 and continue on in this wonderful study through the book of James.